What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Between the two kidnappings, he had a short-lived affair with my mom. My dad basically got divorce papers when he found out. He's like, you're putting our daughters in danger. I'm telling you, this man is a horrible criminal. He didn't know what he was doing to me. He didn't have any of that idea in his head, but he's just a terrible person. You got to stay away from him. And if you don't, we're getting divorced and I'm taking these girls. It only took about 10 days. My mom went down to her mother's house in Utah and then came home back to Pocatello and basically my mom and dad just fell into each other's arms. My mother was sobbing and my dad was crying and us girls when we were told they might get a divorce we were bawling. Nobody in our world had gotten divorced. None of our friends had divorced parents and so when they came back together it was just this huge relief. She comes back to my dad and now they're both on the same team. They were married until the day my dad passed away. At that point, I'm turning 14. So this has gone from age 12, where I was kidnapped in the fall, to turning 14 in the middle of the summer. So two years almost has gone by. He showed up in my bedroom several times during that year. I mean, literally was in my bedroom, my house. He had divided our long bedroom that could sleep all three of us girls in one great big room. He had divided it up so we each had our own bedroom. My bedroom he had put at the very back corner of the house where there were two windows. He knew exactly what he was doing. That little box with the alien voices showed up in my bedroom, woke me up. It was talking in that high-pitched, monotone, alien, staccato voice and giving me those same instructions that I'm this special person. I'm going to have a baby to save a dying planet. I needed to make time to see the male companion. And then all of a sudden he'd be standing at my doorway without his shoes on. That's what I remember as a little girl. He was in his socks. He would come in and he would do his dirty work and he would leave and the box would disappear with him. And that layer of brainwashing just increased. It just got worse because I could see them everywhere. I could see them in my back seat, driving in a car with my mom. I could see them in somebody that had clear blue eyes and jet black hair. And I would look at them and think, that's got to be one of the aliens. And your mind fills in those blanks. Birchtold still hasn't served his time in jail. There's a court hearing. He is convicted. He has to go serve 15, with an N, 15 days in jail for what he did to me the first time. But nobody knows he raped me. Nobody knows anything. So he hasn't gone yet to serve his 15 days in jail. But I demand to go work at his fun center. He had gone to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and set up a fun center for kids. Of course he did. I tell my mom and dad that I want to go work there and that Jerry's going to work there. That's his son, who's my age. We're both going to work up there. 
I go on my own. When my mom has gone to the grocery store or something, I went downstairs so that my sisters couldn't hear me. And I called from the Yellow Pages a cab. And I got in that little cab. Karen and Susan are like, what? And I said, just don't tell mom. I have to go. And I drove in this cab to the airport in Pocatello. And I had a wad of cash that Birch told had given me. I don't remember exactly this part, but I think he was actually in the airport, but in disguise. I left and I got on a plane. My mother, when she got home, saw the yellow pages open to the taxi cab companies, brought my sisters in the car, raced out to the airport and tried to get me to stop, but I was already through the gate. And I went to Jackson Hole and my mother, I think, went into a catatonic kind of state. According to my sister Karen, it was the most scary thing she'd ever seen. My dad called the attorney that was representing Birchtold because he had now been convicted of this thing. And so any crime that he did could put him in jail sooner. And so they said, if you don't get her home, if you do not send her back, you are going to go to jail tomorrow. What happened is he sent me back home after a few days up in Jackson Hole. My birthday happened over those few days, sent me back home with a new sewing machine. My dad about had a heart attack. Birch told, he would tell me exactly what I needed to do and how I should stage a fight with my mom and dad. Here's the note you're going to write. Copy this note in your own handwriting. I write a note, I pack a backpack, and I leave it in my bedroom closet. Now, I haven't left yet. I got home, and within a week, I was told what day to stage this fight with my parents with the backpack. All of that preparation of escalating into this rebellious teenager that was staged had been completed. I would leave the note on my pillow and that he would come in the middle of the night and he would help me out of the window in my bedroom. Around the corner of the house was his car without any lights on and I got into his car and I was gone again. This time he took me to Southern California and I was put into a Catholic boarding school. He told the nuns that he was a CIA agent and that people might come looking for me and that they should give them no information because they were trying to get to him, that he and Jerry Ford were like best friends and they believed him. He got credentials and whatever looked real. They thought he was my father and that my mother had been killed in Lebanon and they put me in this school. Then he went back to Idaho and he served his 15 days in jail. When I was found the next time at the Catholic boarding school in Pasadena, California, it took more than one time for them coming to finally show as much evidence as they could to say, look, you've been conned by a man who has literally kidnapped this girl who is playing along with this story because her safety must be in jeopardy. I'm 14 when I'm found and brought back. I've been missing for almost four months. I'm brought home. The whole school has an assembly. Don't bother the Broberg girl. So, of course, that makes me even more of an alien. I still believe the story. I still believe I'm half alien and half human. I still haven't hit puberty. And I still have to have a child to save a dying planet or my little sister's going to be taken or my dad's going to die or my sister's blind. It's all still there. None of that is gone. So I get home and how things escalate for those next two years, I'm learning to drive. And I get my driver's license at 15 in Idaho. So by the time I'm back and it's the holidays, about six months later, I have a driver's license when I'm 15. Birchtold is in constant communication as per usual through notes at school. But now I can drive to a location that's farther away. The big day was my 16th birthday. I was supposed to have a baby to save this dying planet. By the time I was 16, 
that had been set up from the first kidnapping. By the time you're over the age of 16, then you won't be able to have the alien baby. We'll have to find somebody else younger to do the mission. Well, that was my little sister, and I didn't want that to happen. So I was looking for every opportunity to be in touch with B. And again, he didn't live in Pocatello anymore, but he wasn't very far away. He knew exactly how to get to me, and now I could drive. So I would go and meet him. He'd do his dirty work, try to have the alien baby. Of course, I'm not ever going to get pregnant. And it just gets worse for my parents. I barely ever talk to my dad. I barely acknowledge that he's in the room. I go down into a deep, deep, dark hole. I was desperate to get this mission accomplished, to do whatever I had to do to make sure that this wasn't going to happen to anybody else in my family. This goes on for another year and a half. Now my 16th birthday is coming. I've never disclosed anything about what he did to me. Now it's summertime again. My birthday's in the very end of July. I'm in a place where I can put on the right show at school and be happy and cute, but I never go on a date. I never let a boy get close to me. I always am very, very careful that I follow the rules. Well, then I get in to see a psychologist. I never told her anything, but when she met with my parents, she said, you know, she still sees your family and her home as a safe place. No matter how she acts, even if she's acting like this horrible teenager, she really does see your home as safe. When it got to that summer, I was really in a quite a depressed state of mind. My 16th birthday is coming. I'm supposed to be pregnant, having a baby to save the dying planet. I'm not. The psychologist had said, keep doing what you're doing and let her express herself in the ways that she's so good at. Because I'd been a little actress since I was seven playing little Gretel in The Sound of Music. That bug had bit me early and I never stopped. I mean, that's just always what I love to do and still love to do. I went to this drama camp as a 15-year-old, knowing that my birthday would happen while I was at the drama camp. And I made this plan. I had been contemplating if I got to that point where now I'm 16, are they going to vaporize me? And when are they going to take my little sister? I knew where my dad had bought a gun. I knew where he hid the gun. I thought after this drama camp, if I'm still alive, I'm going to tell Susan about the mission. And if she doesn't want to do it, then I'm going to kill her. And then I'm going to kill myself. That's what had gone through my mind a few times, even to the point of going and looking to see if the gun was still there. For five weeks, we did workshops and then we had a show we put together. This one boy would follow me around because he liked me and I would ignore him. One day we ended up in the bowling alley where there was an ice cream parlor. He bought my ice cream. He was in front of me in line. And I just knew something terrible was going to happen because this boy, who I had never really talked to except on stage in some scenes, I just was panicked. Oh my gosh, this is it. I'm going to go back home after this camp and something terrible is going to happen. Well, my mom called and my dad every night at the same time every day when I was at the dorm, that night when they called and that thing had happened, they told me that my dogs were sick and that they had taken them to the vet because they were convulsing. I just lost it. I just started crying and I was like, oh, it's my fault. And I just was certain that it was because this boy had bought this ice cream for me. And so I go to bed, basically cry myself to sleep, so worried about my doggies. Next morning, the TA came to the dorm room and said, oh, your mom is on the phone. She wanted to talk to you this morning before you leave for the workshops. I got on the phone with my mom and I thought, oh no, this is it. She's going to tell me the dogs are dead. She goes, Jenny, you were so upset about the dogs. I just wanted you to know that I think they might have eaten something that was bad for them, but they're doing fine. They're running around. 
and they're alive and well and everything's good and have a great day. What happened to me in that moment was going to change my life. This is how a brainwashed person thinks. I had about a 15 second window where in my mind, I thought to myself, okay, I know that you're watching me, but are you real? Are you really there? Nothing bad has happened. I have to know if you're real. Is this really gonna happen? That was the first time in almost four years to the day. This is in August. I've had my 16th birthday at the camp. I hadn't died yet. I hadn't been vaporized. The family's coming that weekend to come and see the play and pick me up and go back home. It was enough for me though that I basically went through the paces of testing the waters. I went on a date. That was the big test eventually. This was in September. So I'd been testing the waters, doing little things, being a little nicer to my dad. It was incredible when I went on that first date. My friend Janet had set up this group date. And when I got home after that date, there was my dad asleep in his lazy boy chair, waiting up for me. I walked through the door in my home and just to see him sitting there, kind of woke up and, oh, Janny, how was it? Did you have a good time? I just looked at him and I went and sat on the arm of his chair and I put my arm around the back of his neck. We talked a little bit. My dad was so happy that I was talking to him and that I was being affectionate. I kissed him on the forehead and then walked past mom and dad's bedroom. Everybody's home and everybody's okay. Dogs are running around, greeting me at the door like they did. I get back to that back bedroom upstairs and I just laid in my gunny sack dress and my platform shoes because I was so short and tiny. I laid on the bed just staring at the ceiling and I'm like, I don't think they're real. I think maybe B has been lying to me. I was coming out of that fog of my whole altered state of reality. It really wasn't until my best friend Caroline and my sister Karen found some of the notes and letters that B had written to me and they confronted me. And that's when they started to drag it out of me to start to talk about what had happened. Caroline was really good at pressing me a little further. She might've gotten a few more things out of me, but when she said, I'm gonna tell your parents if you don't go upstairs and tell them, we basically stayed up all night talking. It was really interesting how that one night was the beginning of many, many years of coming to the whole story. I didn't tell everything or every detail for many, many years, but immediately I went upstairs and told mom and dad some things. He got convicted and went to a mental hospital and everybody thought, okay, that's it. He's gonna be there for a long time. They're gonna fix him. And in reality, he just went on to charm the next unsuspecting family. It makes me really sad now because he was out within way less than 12 months. I think he was only there for three or four months. So that was really disappointing for all of the FBI and the police and all the detectives and everybody that worked on the case and the district attorneys. It was just really sad. By that time, he had already been grooming another woman and her daughter, then another one. I mean, he was already losing interest in me. I was aging out, so to speak. So he'd already got the next one going and was working on another one. The main reason that I told my story and have been telling my story to very small groups or to individuals since I was 27 years old, 
and had my son and went to a friend who had started a book club. I had no book, but she and I got close and I told her my story. We were in Florida. We worked at Disney World. We were both entertainers. She said, well, I have this book club and I think you should come and tell people your story. And I'm like, but I don't have a book. And she's like, well, you should. And sitting there with those ladies, and really, we were all young. We were in our mid to maybe early 30s, most of the people in the room. And there was like eight of us. But I remember walking in the door with that little boy who I was so in love with, right? I was like, how am I going to protect him? How am I going to make sure this doesn't happen to him? Because it's always somebody that is trusted. Almost always, that's the first tactic. A lot of people didn't get that the parents are groomed. And that's why I told my story in the first place. When I started on this journey for my own healing and stood up for myself in a way that I hadn't before, I was 30 years old. It's interesting because it came out in stages a little bit here and there. But about age six, when my son would ask me questions about things that six-year-olds start to be curious about, body parts, and I always use the right names and tried to make it just like, this is yours, you're in charge. Little pieces would come out, not to scare him, but to make him aware. I can't remember the age, but when he finally kind of knew about the story, it was like he wasn't afraid of monsters under his bed. He was afraid of being kidnapped. And I didn't really talk about a lot of the sexual assault parts until way later. But it was an unfolding, just little by little. But the groundwork of that is to take the air out of anything that you are talking to your kids about that might feel scary or sexual so that they have that comfort level of my mom's going to hold it together so that I can be upset about some things. I am protected by this adult who is calm, cool, collected, caring. That's important. I think that you have to kind of weigh it out. Like, would you rather have this happen or this? You might be a little scared, but guess what? That's going to probably protect them. When I was 30 years old, I really woke up and went, oh my gosh, I get to you know, not rewrite my story that it didn't happen, but be able to now create something for myself and my life that is different. I'll have to do the hard work of healing. I'll have to find a therapist. I'll have to go through some various programs, EMDR. I don't know what I'm going to have to do because half of these terms I didn't even know. So I was trying to find my way through reading books and watching Oprah, but I knew it was up to me. I knew that I chose and I was choosing to be happy, hopeful, and helpful in my own life and in the lives of others by telling my story. And I just did it in small groups. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't get paid for it. I really have done it for 30 years with really no compensation in a financial way until the series. And then they buy your story rights and you get some money as a consultant and producer. That was great. But I put all of that basically back into starting the foundation and the podcast and my online community. So I just recycled it back into the things that matter to me. If you watch that nine-part series on Peacock, you will see how grooming happens. You will see yourself in my story, whether you're me or you're my mom or dad or one of my sisters or a friend, you will see how this happens. And that to me was what I always wanted. I wanted people to see how the psychology of a predator, of a master manipulator, of a narcissistic psychopath happens. I want every person on the planet to see it so they can protect themselves, their own children and their families. So that really was accomplished. And if you watch the series, it's so well done. I helped produce it and I helped make sure the story was told correctly. 
even though some characters are combined and some events are combined or not, they got it right because I was able to give all of that input and be a part of that, which I am so grateful for. I have a book that tells our whole story. There are so many details of my story that nobody knows. Telling all the nitty gritty, gory details, everything, and not holding anything back. I also do speaking engagements, promoting the book and the story, because in that book and story, you really do understand the psychology of a master manipulator. You really can see how it unfolded that talk about grooming and talk about telltale signs that something's off, something's wrong. There might be something inappropriate and sexually assaulting happening to some loved one in your life. What to do? I really did that because I believe that now is the time. I can see how much the world has changed, how many more people are starting to talk and tell their stories, how people are starting to believe people. I can see that we are actually at a place where people can hear the words and they can believe that these things are happening because enough people are starting to talk about it. What's been the hardest part of sharing? I got to a point, I remember after the first documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight came out, where my sisters were like, you and mom, we are taking you off of social media. My sister Susan was like, nope, you're not reading any of this crap by people who say they don't believe you or your mom's a slut. How could you do this? They don't know what it's like to be groomed or they just want to throw gas on the fire. It's also distancing themselves and gives them comfort of thinking they can't be harmed in the same way. And that's actually even more harmful. Those that have gone through abuse and assault, they are so grateful for someone to say all the words and say it out loud. It gives them courage. They are able to find their voice. And that's what I think being brave enough to talk about our stories in such plain terms raises the awareness and the education so that we can prevent this. Remember that you do have hope. You have control over what happens next in your life. Even if you don't feel like you're going to be able to find it, there is hope, there is healing, and there is happiness. And you just have to do the hard work of it. Whether you need to find a coach or you need to go into some kind of a program so you can feel seen and heard and believed. I think the hardest thing is when you're trying to do something that you think can definitely improve society and improve the lives of children, tweens and teens and young adults everywhere, and you're really committed to that. And then you get backlash from people, people who criticize the way you do it, or they think, oh, she's just using her story to make all this money. It's just not true. When people put those sorts of things in your face, like, oh, you're stupid mother, or that girl is so up in her head about her wonderful family, I feel sorry for her. You know, that just really bothers me. But at the same time, I'm able to let it go now because it doesn't serve me to feel bad that they don't get it. I almost think, well, maybe nothing bad has happened to them. Maybe they're one of those lucky people that can have all these criticisms or whatever and don't have any idea and they're lucky. But that's been the hardest part. And it's hard on me because it's hard on my son, who also works for me in the background of all of these things that I'm doing now. He has been my producer. He's been the person that has been in the background. And when somebody says something and he finds out, it hurts him. And that makes me mad. I guess you still are trying to protect your own kids from your trauma because your trauma has affected their lives. That's been hard on me. I did have these wonderful parents who, no matter what I did, 
it was never returned with any kind of anger or why are you acting that way or go to your room. My dad would just turn around and say, I don't know what's wrong, Jenny. I don't know why you won't talk to me or I don't know why you yelled at me or I don't know why you won't hug me. I don't understand, but I want you to know I will step in front of a moving train for you. I love you. It is unconditional. That is how my parents were. And I'm so lucky. They were loving me no matter what. We still ate dinner together around the dinner table every night. We talked to each other. If somebody wants to know what they can do to protect their kids, my number one thing would be eat dinner without any distractions at your table and then shut up and listen to your kids tell you about whatever you could get them to talk about. Whatever they want to talk about, just get them to talk and you just be quiet and listen. That's what my parents did. They might have made mistakes and done other things wrong, but we knew we were loved and we knew that that time around that dinner table was sacred. That's my tip. Sit down, eat a meal with your family every day, and then just listen and let them talk. And don't get all shocked and weird. Just let them talk about whatever they want to talk about. One out of four girls and one out of six boys. And in some communities, those numbers are are higher, much higher. And that's just what's reported and what we have come to believe are the numbers. That's like 25% of the planet. That's like 2 billion people have either been abused or are currently being abused in this way, sexual assault under the age of 18. Who in their right mind is okay with it being one in five kids that suffers through this? This is worse than cancer. This is worse than the pandemic we just had. And the repercussions of not helping people heal, we have to talk about this. I'm so committed to that. There was no such thing as advocates. My parents needed an advocate. They didn't know what they should and shouldn't do or say. They had never been in a courtroom. They'd never had a speeding ticket. People think that the victim should have an advocate, but that didn't exist. But also the people who don't know the criminal justice system and didn't know what to do or not to do. They don't even know the right questions to ask. And that is still true today. Most people have no idea. You don't even know to ask the question because you don't even know it exists. You don't know what you don't know you don't know. And that's why so many things have to be changed. I've wanted to be in this time and point in my life for a while, and now it finally came together. I was able to form a nonprofit foundation called the Jan Broberg Foundation. We want to break the chains of abuse. My foundation, it's about education and being able to have education for prevention. So the prevention is possible. It all stems from education. And then healing through community. And the last pillar is public policy change so that it favors the victims. We're not guilty till proven innocent. We're not on trial. The most important thing we need is for people to believe us. You go report, even if the state or whoever doesn't feel like they can move forward and prosecute because there's not enough evidence, you go make a report because if that's sitting in someone's file, then maybe the next time there will be enough evidence. That's how we're going to change the cycle from going bigger and expanding to shrinking. The foundation is where we are hoping to really get those basic benchmarks in place where we can get public policy to change so that legislatively the laws favor those that have been through this and they don't let the criminals go and just abuse another 30 kids because that's the FBI statistic that it's 30 to 70 kids. One pedophile, that's how many they'll affect. That's how many they'll get to over their life. 
We've helped support people through their victim impact statements, and we've helped support people through their legal battles. I post a lot of information about grooming and about what to look for. I answer questions that people will write in on different platforms. I try to be as forthright as I can be about getting more information and education out to people. Also, my online community has become a really special thing for me. That is a place where survivors can join us. It's called Thrivivors, like Survivor, because we want to thrive. All of our stories are different, but they're the same. They have the core root of trauma. When you have that kind of peer-to-peer group, you can celebrate your breakthroughs and you can tell about your challenges and you can talk about your story in a safe place where you are believed. I've started my own podcast telling survival stories and also experts who maybe have survived sexual abuse and trauma. The podcast is The Jan Broberg Show and I invite in therapists and trauma-informed specialists, detectives and people who have gone through the fire of healing and are on the other side helping others. That's all I want to do for others. That's what every single thing I have done in these last few years has been about. It's giving other people the permission to use their voices, to come together as a community and heal, to give back into the world a safer, happier, more hopeful future for our children and for those who've been harmed that they can heal and that it can be a different life experience than the one that they are burdened with at this moment. People suffer in silence. I'm like, no more silence. Come join our community. Let's get together. Let's believe each other and let's help each other down that path. That's really all I want to do for the rest of my life because there's so many people that just feel like they're stuffed into that little corner where they can't really talk and tell. And that's got to happen if we're going to change anything in the world, ourselves, first of all, and then everyone around us to become that hyper aware, educated person so that prevention can happen. And it can happen. It may not happen 100% of the time, but we can shrink this cycle. We can shrink it, but we have to be willing to raise our voices. I want to hear from people. My social is Jenny Proberg. So with an I between my first and last name. So I'm at J-A-N-I Broberg, and I hope that people will reach out. I answer all my direct messages. I make sure that really no one's left behind. It may not be a big answer, but come and join me in this healing journey, in that process of changing legislation and public policy, and then becoming educated and aware. I want this to end for our children and generations to come. Thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for this really beautiful conversation. Oh, I enjoyed every minute. Thank you, Amy. It was fantastic. I wish you could see me with my hands over my heart, just clutching my heart because I'm so grateful for you giving me the opportunity to have this conversation. It's been amazing. Thank you, Amy, so much. As Jan reported, when she returned home in 1976, her abuser faced only days in jail and under six months in a mental health facility as a result of his conviction. A decade after Jan began her healing process, her abductor was convicted of sexually abusing another child and spent one year in a Utah prison. Since Jan shared her story publicly, six other women have come forward and reported similar alleged abuse to Jan at the hands of Birchtold. 
In 2005, over 30 years after her last abduction, Jan's abuser was found guilty of simple assault, criminal trespassing, and disorderly conduct after he got into a fight with a demonstrator at a Bikers Against Child Abuse event. As a result of his newest sentence and allegedly for fear of going back to prison, he ended his life on November 11, 2005, leaving his victims in his wake. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I think that was the most heartbreaking thing about it. All I had were those scraps, not even full bones, just like little splinters of bones. And that was his first name and his last name, Bert Bridges. The way we surmise that he was lynched probably in 1904 is because that's when my grandfather, Houston, was born. Houston always said, I never got a chance to meet my father. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.